0: The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths.
1: Toxicology, astro
2: seismology,
1: magnetism, the dark side,
2: genetically engineered potatoes, planetoid,
3: planetoid.
0: I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Diffusion. I'm Derek Muller. Sit back and relax while we pump your brain full of the latest science offerings. On the show today, we have Mark West investigating how Santa's living up to his New Year's resolutions, Patrick Ruby getting up close and personal with Skippy. But before we get to any of that, here's Patrick Ruby with the latest science news.
1: 2009 heralds a new year of electronic gadgets the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas has just finished. Among its new exhibitions were pocket laptops, smart gadgets, and new netbooks. The show was held from January 8 till January 11 and had its own profile page on Facebook. The electronic giants Microsoft, Apple, Sony, and Google battled it out with some other electronics competitors to bring forth the latest gizmos. Technology to expect in 2009? Palm is introducing its new Nova smart handheld device. Microsoft is bringing out a Windows 7 operating system to succeed the unpopular Vista, and a new Zune to compete with Apple's iPod. Google is introducing a new PC platform to put on a netbook, as well as a new mobile phone based on an open source platform. Sony is introducing new 3D games to the market. It also filmed several episodes of Jeopardy on a 16,000-square-foot stage built for the game show. Several American celebrities were also at CES to remote it this year, including Dr Oz from The Oprah Winfrey Show and Indy 500 driver Sarah Fisher. From physorg.com, a new gene might be the key to adolescent baldness. Maria Una hereditary hypotrichosis is the name for this type of baldness. Children with the condition are born with no hair, develop wiry hair in childhood, and then lose it as puberty starts. Jiang and researchers from the Peking Union Medical College in Beijing have identified the gene responsible for this. It is a gene that codes for a small peptide called U2HR found on chromosome 8. This in turn suppresses another protein called Human Hairless Monologue. The researchers studied 19 Chinese families with Maria Una hereditary hypotrichosis and found that they had mutations in the U2HR gene. If U2HR isn't working properly, the human hairless monologue protein builds up and causes baldness. It is hoped that now the gene has been discovered we might eventually be able to design drugs to target the mutant gene and prevent the early onset baldness. The research has been published in the journal Nature Genetics Letters. And finally, sailing to save the devil. Two science students from the University of Tasmania are doing their bit to save the Tasmanian devil. Adrian Beswick and Josh Phillips will sail across Bass Strait to raise money and awareness in treating the facial tumour that is killing one of our national icons. Currently there are between 25,000 and 50,000 Tasmanian devils left in the wild and in some places their numbers have been reduced by 90% in the last 10 years because of the disease. It is believed the tumour is caused by a genetic mutation inherited from a single common ancestor in the mid-1990s. It is transmitted when the devils bite each other while fighting and mating. Adrian and Josh will be sailing Bass Strait in a B-14, an 18-foot skiff yacht. It is the fastest two-person body-swung sailing boat in the world. Both students are accomplished sailors. They came 12th in the B-14 world titles in England last year and will be competing in the 2009 B-14 titles and the Crown Series in Hobart later this year. They will attempt the crossing in March, setting out from Stanley in Tasmania and finishing at Wilson's Promontory in Victoria. They are hoping to raise $100,000 for the devils.
0: Feeling tired and hungover after Christmas? Imagine how the big fella feels. This week, Mark West talks to Bianca O'Grady about the health problems that Santa Claus has, from dietary issues to possible substance abuse.
3: Bianchi, you've been looking into Santa's health problems and you've contacted a team of scientific and medical experts. What have you discovered?
4: Really, Santa is in serious trouble. He does do this incredible routine every year where time stands still and he circumnavigates the globe. And he's always looking so jolly and so happy, but really is a bit of a ticking health time bomb going on underneath that very jovial, red-bearded exterior. Is
3: this maybe to do with consumption over Christmas? I know I'm feeling a little bit fat and bloated from Christmas.
4: Well, there's a whole range of issues that Santa is facing. I mean, the most obvious one to look at him is you go, well, that's a pretty unhealthy uh, weight profile. And as one of our experts, uh, cardiologist, Phil Harris, has said that he's, he's got what we'd call profound abdominal obesity. And this is actually the worst kind of obesity because you're putting fat on your abdomen, and that's really the shape you most want to avoid uh, as opposed to having fat on your hips or your bottom because what it suggests is that you've actually got some serious underlying cholesterol problems. And in Santa's case, he really does have that classic shape that would send most cardiologists, um, set their pulses racing and their secretaries typing. So, I mean, and, and what's more, I mean, he's at the age where his risk of cardiovascular disease increases. I mean, to look at him, not that we know how old Santa actually is, but to look at him, you'd probably put him maybe between 60 or 70 And in a good light. Hmm. And uh, that's the point at which, you know, most adults do need to start taking their heart health a lot more seriously. Things like, I mean, he's overweight, which is a big issue. He's probably got cholesterol problems, but also with that kind of a body shape, he is probably at risk of type 2 diabetes as well. And yes. if you go, start going down that path, well, then, you know, if, he, if that's not treated properly, he's, I mean, he may already have the early warning signs of insulin resistance, those sorts of things. And if he goes further down that pathway, then he could be looking at eye problems from diabetic retinopathy. He could get kidney disease. It's, it, it doesn't look good just based on that, that kind of his, his actual weight shape.
3: This could be the death of Christmas.
4: I know. It seems a bit Scroogey to to go on about. But, I mean, if you look at his diet, for example, I I mean, I don't know what what you used to leave out for Santa when you were younger, or maybe you still do, but for us it was always mince pies, beer, and maybe a carrot for the reindeer. Well,
3: that's what I was thinking. Maybe we could stave off some of these diabetic eyesight problems if he started eating the carrots
4: instead of the mince pies. Exactly. He should definitely eat the carrot, but what's more, he should probably eat his reindeer as well. Yes. And uh, our our resident uh, dietitian nutritionist, Carol Nelson, suggested that uh, he would do a lot better if he actually ditched some of the minced pies, maybe left them for the kitties, uh-huh, mm. um, and substituted a few reindeer pies, because reindeer meat's very low in fat, and it's very, well, it's very lean, probably high iron, or if he was in Australia, he could say a few kangaroo pies. Well, maybe he should um, stop and eat some you know, kangaroos. Throw a few carrots into the mix, and that's going to be a heck of a lot better for him than, than scoffing all those mince pies.
3: I have to admit, I've eaten reindeer when I was in Scandinavia. Was and it good? it's Oh, it's the best meat I've ever had.
4: Go. it was fantastic I mean, a, a I mean, winner. It,
3: well it cost a lot those scandinavian countries are, are highly taxed so and I, maybe i don't know if santa's philanthropic um work is very highly taxed up there he lives in finland somewhere doesn't he plenty of That's reindeer dry. around he's
4: sure to have found a tax haven you'd really need to find something if you were in that line of work really
3: somewhere in, in the, the, the outer hebrides or somewhere up somewhere up there there's probably some tax haven and he's got other problems as well with riding in the sleigh well
4: where I mean DVT is a classic one We're always warned that if you're going on long flights Or even long drives That you should, you know Sitting immobile for long periods of time is bad It slows down your circulation You can get blood pooling in your feet Does increase the risk of blood clots Now this sleigh is sitting in If the pictures are true Is quite... cramped with huge bags of presents so he's going to have long periods of travel if he's going to get all the way from the north pole down to for example canberra that's a pretty long trip pretty and so he's trip. sitting for very long periods cramped by all of these bags of presents probably not exercising his legs very much so his risk of dvt and particularly with his his weight profile as well it's uh, it it is quite high so um i mean our travel travel medicine expert nick suarez suggested that well first of all he should probably lose some weight but also start exercising in his sleigh you know doing those classic exercises that they give you on airplanes you know, rotate the feet and point the toes and raise and lower all those sorts of things um, could save his life.
3: And his sleigh I guess is not pressurized um, altitude sickness I don't know much about this but I guess he's at risk.
4: Well he be. I mean, even, even if his sleigh was pressurised, he's going to be delivering to some pretty high-altitude places. I mean, there are parts of Colorado that are well above 3,000 metres above sea level, and if you think, so, I'm thinking, I guess, of the parts of the world where Santa is likely to visit, you know, even in, uh, in for example, Peru, if he's taking presents high up in the Andes to Cusco or somewhere like that, you're about 3,500 metres above sea level, which is the point at which altitude sickness does start to kick in. Um, and, you know, it, at the extreme end of things, he could be looking at high-altitude pulmonary or cerebral edema, which is basically a swelling of the a brain or a fluid in the lungs. And both of those can be fatal if he doesn't get down to a lower altitude quickly. Um, and he's probably going to spend a fair amount of time up there. So uh, what Nick's I suggest is he should actually graduate his journey. So when he's travelling above 3,000 metres, you shouldn't go more than 300 vertical metres each day, and you should always sleep lower than the highest point at which that you ascend to although i don't know that santa sleeps so i'm, I'm not sure that the sleeping aspect is but he's probably going to be experiencing some breathlessness might yes. even have some you know gastrointestinal effects of altitude it's not a lot of fun actually i'm surprised he's as jolly as he is
3: no he kind of sounds like a ticking time bomb maybe he's not very much fun around the middle of the year
4: Well, maybe he just has that one day where he's just really jovial and everything, you know, he must be doped up to the eyeballs with (laughs) every possible, you know, sedative or happy pill known to man and then the rest of the year is utterly unbearable. (laughs) Maybe that's why he has all the elves doing the work. He just kind of goes to bed and sort of has a 364-day hangover.
3: (laughs) Well, that sounds like, well, my hangover wasn't that long. What about uh, his zoonic diseases? Well,
4: this is an interesting one because, I mean, just looking at the purely the infectious diseases side of things, he's going to be exposed to a lot of potential infectious diseases going into all these houses. You know, might not be particularly clean. But one disease that would be unique to Santa's particular line of work is Lyme disease, um, which thankfully I don't think we have in Australia. It's it's um, carried by ticks, but um, as I said, we don't have it here. But deer are particularly prone to ticks. So if he's grooming his deer, spending a lot of time hanging out with them and, you know, keeping them happy, well, then he could get exposed to Lyme disease. And that, that, you know, I think the first warning signs of that are sort of unusual rash. Um, and it can be treated with antibiotics, but it's something you'd want to get onto early. I don't know what the long-term effects are, but I know that it's, in the U.S. it's quite a problem. And, and um, you know, people do kind of have these long-term health impacts of it. I think joint pain and it's not particularly nice.
3: It might explain his perpetual rosy cheeks, perhaps.
4: Well, that's true, although that could be fever from, you know, contracting some kind of vile little flu or cold. That's (laughs) right. (laughs) Hanging around people's houses in unsanitary conditions, but also things like food poisoning. Yes. I mean... You know, you kind of getting beer and, and mince pies that might be cooked up in less than sanitary circumstances and they're left out all night, not like they're refrigerated. So
3: That's right, the milk would be bad for that as well, wouldn't it?
4: Well, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, I, I guess there's a range of things that people leave out for Santa. I mean, we used to use mince pies and beer. I don't know what the other options are, but, yeah, you couldn't. I mean, with eating that many food, sort of home-cooked food, and home-cooked food is by far and away the greater risk yes. risk zone for food poisoning rather than eating out, that he's, um, yeah, he could be in trouble.
3: He'd be in trouble, like he'd be in line for some liver damage as well, I imagine. There's a lot of alcohol on Christmas.
4: That's, it is a lot of alcohol, so yes, I think if we want to see Santa come back next year, we're definitely going to have to lay off the beer and start putting out something a bit more healthy, like maybe um, I don't know what would be a healthy drink, sort of Something wheat grassy or something horrid like that.
3: <laughs> Maybe, yeah, something from Boost Juice or something <laughs> like that.
4: <laughs> yeah, some, but not too much juice because that'll be, there's a lot of sugar in juice. I mean, really, water, it's it's terribly dull, but water would really be the best thing for him because that would then also help reduce his risk of, um, of de-van thrombosis. because you're encouraged to, to drink fluids to, to sort of reduce your risk yep. and avoid dehydrating. So, And then dehydration would also be an issue because we don't. You know, we don't give him much water. We're giving him beer all the time, and if he's going to be going around the entire planet in what's supposed to be one night, it's a lot of travel on not a lot of water. That's so yeah, we need to need to ditch the beer and go to the water. Keep the beer for mum and dad, I say.
3: Yeah, keep it for the next morning or next yeah. evening, perhaps. Yes. And you put together this crack team of Santa experts. Where did you find them all, and who did you talk to?
4: Well, these, uh, these experts are, uh, are very well known, uh, medical experts in Australia. So, um, Professor Phil Harris is head of cardiology at Cine's RPA and, um, we've also got, uh, Professor Nick Zwa, who's a, a GP and a travel, travel medicine expert. And Professor Carol Nelson is also an expert nutritionist. So, you know, it really was a crack team of Australian, Australian medical well medical experts um but i think there's quite a few people out there that would have something to add to to comment on santa's health i mean for example you know if you look at at the issue of jet lag Mm. who knows if he's actually going to experience jet lag but we know that poor sleep can adversely affect your health and for every extra hour of sleep you have when you're, you're sort of in the risk category actually reduces the um coronary artery calcification which is a risk you know it can lead to heart disease so in fact poor sleep is is really up there with high blood pressure is one of the risk factors for heart disease so you know, and things like sh- people who work do shift work. I think in the past have have been shown to actually have higher risk of conditions like breast cancer and things like that. So, you know, they're, 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 there's all of those side effects as well. But they're, they're, I should put in there is actually good news in case there are any kiddies listening and sitting mm. going. Oh, I was just Santa's about to ask. Die before he comes around next year, the good news is <laughs> that obviously Santa has to keep track of who's been naughty or nice. Yes. And this with the population of the planet now sitting at Six billion or something, is it? I mean, I I don't know how many of those necessarily believe in Santa, but there's quite a lot of people to keep track of. There's some serious mental agility involved in this. and, and, uh, And as the old adage says, use it or lose it. So in Santa's case, he's really using it and working it hard. So in terms of um, you know risk of dementia and conditions like that, I'd say he's probably better off than about 99% of the population. His <laughs> Brain would be very very active, and that's a that's a good thing for Santa. So, so he might be overweight, diabetic, uh, cirrhotic liver, jet lagged, got DVT, altitude sickness, Lyme disease, but his brain will be sharp.
3: And he's getting out of the house, which is a little bit rare for for the elderly.
4: Well, that's true. You know, we'd like to see elderly people stay active and be involved. And I mean, you know, he's traveling, which is a fantastic thing. Seeing the world, he's keeping his, keeping his mind active and, and I guess, yeah, staying, staying on the ball, staying involved. So it, it is, that is a, definitely a plus um, for him.
0: Well, thanks, Mark, for spoiling my image of Santa Claus and characterizing him as a heavy drinking type 2 diabetes deep vein thrombosis sufferer. If you would like to find out whether Mark was on the naughty or nice list this year, please email us at diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, brought to you across Australia by the Community Radio Network. It's summertime in Sydney, which means lazing around, watching the cricket, blowing off work for the pub, and having your mates over for a barbie. But before you go checking a steak on the hot plate, Listen to what Patrick Ruby has to say about some alternative Aussie cuisine.
1: Beef, beef, beef. What could be more Australian than a steak on the barbie, especially now it's summertime. There's no denying that cattle are a big part of our culture and industry. According to Meat and Livestock Australia, we produce 2.2 million tonnes of beef and veal in the 2007-2008 to 2008 financial year, and each Australian eats about 35.6 kilograms of cow each year. That is excusing vegetarians, of course. And a word of warning, this feature is more focused on the culinary carnivores amongst us. But beef can be bad, according to some ecologists and climate change experts. Cows, along with sheep and goats, are a type of mammal, called a ruminant, and we know that ruminants produce methane, a greenhouse gas. First of all, it takes a lot of effort for ruminants to eat. They swallow their food, then regurgitate it and rechew it, known as chewing the cud. During all this, bacteria in their guts ferment their food, This produces hydrogen. The hydrogen needs to be removed or it will slow down digestion. So the microbes remove it by turning it into methane. The cow and its cousins then belch it into our atmosphere, where it helps to trap heat and make our globe a little warmer. The Garneau Climate Change Review, which came out in July last year, states that about 67% of the methane produced by our agricultural sector comes direct from our cows bellies. The agricultural sector accounts for about 18 percent of Australia's greenhouse emissions and on the flip side is one of the industries most sensitive to the upheavals wrought by climate change. The desire to change our beef eating and beef producing habits has been voiced time and time again and most recently it has turned up two possible replacements an old favourite and a new contender.
3: Breed, mate, so watch me wallabies feed all together now. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me kangaroo down. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me
1: kangaroo down. Kangaroo has repeatedly been offered as a new source of red meat for us red-blooded Aussies. There are the environmental benefits. It doesn't produce methane. The microbes in its gut convert feed into acetic acid. Which is then reabsorbed by the animal. It also doesn't have cloven feet like ruminants, so it is less likely to damage the environment through causing soil erosion and destruction of native grasses. And now the human benefits kangaroo meat is high in protein and low in fat. It contains high concentrations of conjugated linoleic acid, which may help to reduce blood pressure, body fats, and has some anti cancer activity. The Garneau Review highlights a study by Edwards and Wilson in 2008. This suggests that it could be possible by 2020 to develop a sustainable red meat industry by reducing sheep numbers by 34 million and cattle numbers by 7 million and increasing farmed kangaroo numbers to 175 million. That would save us 16 megatons per year of carbon dioxide, but it would mean decreasing our cattle by about 90% and sheep by about 95% of their current numbers and increasing our kangaroos by about 600% above the current total population. Hmm. So what are the barriers to doing this? In a report from physorg.com, beef farmer Kelvin Brown highlights that you would need three-metre-high fences to keep the kangaroos contained. Also, kangaroos might not be so easily transported because they are more fragile than cattle and more easily injured. Abattoirs might need to be located on site, or at least closer to the farms, to manage this. It is legal for licensed hunters to cull a certain quota of kangaroos each year in Australia but animal protectionists argue that it is a cruel practice to hunt and kill kangaroos the way we currently do. So how would we maintain a humane kangaroo-killing industry? And there's the social stigma. Would you eat kangaroo? Something that we currently use as pet food. Well, hang on. It's not just pet food. We export kangaroo meat to over 55 countries for them to eat. Aboriginal people have been eating it for centuries. I went to my local supermarket earlier and bought some for this feature. I cooked it with carrots and zucchini, and topped it with a bit of ginger and garlic. Well, possibly a bit too much garlic, come to think of it. And how did it taste? It was tender and quite mild. Not that different from beef, really. And if that recipe doesn't take your fancy, try this one from Wikipedia, which is apparently how the Arente people of Central Australia eat it the milk guts are pulled out and a wooden skewer is used to close up the carcass. Then it is tossed on top of a fire to singe the hair which is scraped off, and then it's put in a hole and covered up with hot earth and coals. And if a kangaroo industry isn't a viable option, why not pinch their methane-free digestion design? Dr. Athol Cleaver, Senior Principal Research Scientist for the Department of Primary Industries and Fisheries is trying to do just that. In a paper published in 2005 in the Letters in Applied Microbiology, Cleaver and a team of researchers discovered 17 groups of gut flora in the fore stomach of the grey kangaroo Macropus gigantus, 12 of which were new species. In an issue of on-farm feedback in 2005, Dr Cleaver stated that if the non-methane producing bacteria could be modified and transplanted successfully into cow guts, it could halve methane emissions and provide energy for cows to grow 10 to 15% bigger.
0: and
1: And now contender number two, the camel. Well, I haven't eaten this one yet. But apparently, there's no reason why I shouldn't, according to Professor Murray McGregor of the Desert Knowledge Cooperative Research Centre. Eating camel is not going to save us from greenhouse gases like kangaroos might, but it will help our environment. Camels were introduced to Australia in the 1840s as a means of transporting cargo and people across the arid regions of Australia. They were brought in until the early 1900s and by the 1920s, were no longer needed because we had cars and trains. So they were released into the wild. Now, after almost 100 years, the feral camel population is over 1 million and is growing by around 10% per year. Camels damage desert plant species, waterholes, sand dune crests, agricultural fences, and provide a motoring hazard. The Desert Knowledge Cooperative Research Centre states that the best way to control them is by exclusion fencing, ground-based and aerial culling, and commercial harvesting. We export our camels currently, and they are in high demand. Camels have been used for food since the time of ancient Persia and Rome. Camel meat is eaten today in countries like Somalia, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. Camel milk is drunk in India, Ethiopia, and the Middle East. Male dromedary camels, the ones we have feral in Australia, can weigh more than 400 kilograms. That's a lot of meat. So how does camel taste? A bit like beef, according to Professor McGregor. I wonder if camel rump steak or tenderloin will ever take off in Oz. Eating camel and kangaroo by themselves won't cure their respective environmental ailments. To farm all our camels successfully for commercial use would mean we'd need to build roads and agricultural infrastructure in some really remote and arid places in the north of Australia, where it just wouldn't be feasible. And kangaroos, while they could theoretically replace cows and sheep in our meat industry, and hence cut our methane levels, are much less significant than stopping deforestation introducing more bio-sequestration and finding new energy sources to power our homes and industries, but perhaps we should stay open to the idea of kangaroo and camel cutlets for our future summer barbies.
3: So we tanned his hide when he died, Clyde, and that's it, hanging on the shed all together now. Time me kangaroo down, sport.
2: Time me kangaroo down. Time me kangaroo down, sport. Time me kangaroo down.
0: Thanks, Pat. So how do you like your camel? Medium rare or well done? That's all we have time for. Diffusion has been recorded in the cloud-scraping studios of 2SER in Sydney and broadcast by the Community Radio Network in Australia. Subscribe to the podcast by going to www.diffusionradio.com. Well, if you'd like to drop us a line, please send us an email at diffusion at 2SER.com. This episode was produced by Ian Wolfe, and you've been listening to the sultry tones of Mark West and Patrick Ruby. I'm Derek Muller. Tune in next week for another installment of Diffusion.
3: If you want me to, I can hang around with you. If I only knew, that's what you're into.
2: You and him, him and you. If that's what you're into Him hanging round around you You're hanging round, yeah you're there too And if
3: you want me to I will take off all my clothes for you I'll take off all my clothes for you If that's what you're into How about
2: him in the nude? If that's what you're into In the nude in front of you Is that what you'd want of you?
3: If it's cool with you I'll let you get naked too It could be a dream come true Providing that's what you are into
2: is that what you're into him and you in the nude that's what he's prepared to do is that the kind of thing that you think you might be into
3: and then maybe later we'll get hot by the refrigerator in the kitchen next to the pantry you think that might be what you fancy
2: in the buff being rude doing stuff with the food getting lewd with his food we heard that's what you are into
3: and then on our next date. Well, you could bring your roommate, I don't know if Stu is keen to, but if you want, we could double-team you.
2: How about you and two dudes, him, you, and Stu? In the nude, being nude with two dudes with food, well, that's if Stu's into it, too.
3: All the things I do, things I do for you, if
1: I only knew, that's what you're into.